You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hey, everybody, it's Rick Bassman here with Talking Tough. Uh, the get, our guest for tonight is already on the line. I'm not even going to say his name yet. It, it's somebody I've been very excited about interviewing for a long time now. We're to get into uh, what he is all about and who he is in just a moment. Uh, talking tough. I, I love to read the, our tagline right up front. It's about the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. So, yeah, that means we're going to tell stories and have some fun, but we want to want to peel the layers back, so to speak, and, and get to the, the heart and soul beneath the, uh, the tough exterior, if you will. Uh, today's interview is especially interesting as it pertains to the rest of our tagline, and this is it. There are stories of triumph, which our guest today has had plenty of, and here's what he hasn't had. There are falls from grace where they have to climb back to life. Um, I'm glad to say our guest today has shared with me that um, he's not hit a bottom, which is a beautiful thing, but um, but he's surrounded by those sorts of lives on, in his daily life. Our guest today, I'm thrilled to introduce Mr. Dion Joseph. Dion, are you with us? I am with you all the way. How's it going? It's going so well, man. It's going better now that I'm talking with you. This this. Uh, this, this uh, truly is a thrill. I'm 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 a fan of yours as a uh, you know as everything you do, which we'll tell people about in a moment. But really more so of who you are as a person. So I'm very happy to have you on. Uh, before we get started, thank you, Dion. Before we get started, I want to mention something. I don't know if people can hear what sounds like um, relentless rain in the background. If you can, I apologize. Uh, I'm in the upcountry of Maui here, and it just started to pour rain this very second. Uh, also, I always have to mention this up front, Dion. It's a little funny, but we live up here in the Maui wilderness with my four little maniacal pit bulls, who, who I love more than anything. Uh, if anybody comes near the house, because it's a, it's a big uh, it, it, it's a big happening when we get a visitor, um, they'll start to bark uh, like you've never heard before. So I apologize in advance if that happens. Hopefully, it won't today. Any- any furry friend of yours is a friend of mine, brother. Not worried about it. I, I, I appreciate that. Are, are you a dog lover yourself? Yes, I am. I have two beautiful dogs. I have a Maltese, and uh, and I also have a Labrador Retriever. Oh, nice. You know, I, I, we're going to talk about this later in the interview, for sure. Um, first, <laughs> okay. though, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, Dion Joseph, here, here, here are some of the bullet points before we get into it. Dion is a world-renowned law enforcement consultant. He's currently a police officer in Los Angeles County. He, he's a very, very highly regarded public speaker. He's a published author who you can read now on Kindle or you can pick his book up just about anywhere and on Dion Joseph, D-E-O-N-J-O-S-E-P-H.org. And Dion also is a father, a family man, a, a very devout man of God. Now, everything I've said so far you're probably, you know, police officer, L.A. County public speaker, author, family man, man of God. People out there, Dion, are probably going, well, you know, that, that's cool. Okay. Um, there's a lot of people like that. But I, I'm, I'm going to get into to why I think you're so unique in a minute. And let's just go with this. Here's another thing people call you. 
you are known far and wide as the angel of Skid Row. Uh, yes. Is that accurate? <laughs> well, I, I'm, they call me an angel. I just think I do a good job of suppressing the horn, brother. That's <laughs> that's all I do. <laughs> that, no, that, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's, <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, you're, and you're very humble, too, because a moment ago you said, yes, when people call you an angel. If, if you look yourself up online, or if I looked you up online, which I did, people people don't refer to you as an angel of Skid Row. They refer to you as the angel of Skid Row. Now, I know what that means because I've got to, I've gotten to visit you down there before, and, of course, I've, I've read a lot about you. But can you just jump in for a second and, and tell us how a human being would get a title like the angel of Skid Row? Well, the funny thing is, uh, when you are a young a black officer working in a black community that's been indoctrinated to hate and fear you, uh, that's all they've ever known, and they see you as the enemy. You're the beast at every feast. Uh, my first nicknames, few nicknames, weren't Angel. When I first came to uh, Skid Row 23 years ago, I got uh, House Negro. I won't say the other word because I hate it with I hate it with a passion. I got uh, Uncle Tom. I got Sambo. And then uh, years later, as people realized and saw that, hey, you know, I wasn't out to get them, but they still didn't trust me, I got the nickname RoboCop. And they called me RoboCop because, A, I was big and muscular and I walked like a robot. And they thought I was heartless because I kept arresting all of their friends and I never had time to give an explanation, even though the reason why I was doing it was for their safety and their protection and to stop drug dealers from preying on the community. But then as years went on, I became a senior lead officer and they uh, and being a senior lead officer you're allowed to show who you are not just what you do and they found out that i had a true heart uh, of compassion for them and i go out of my way to help them try to get them housed try to get them shelter and really try to protect them from uh, the criminal element that's trying to uh, keep them on the endless spiral of addiction so uh, a lot of them would say they credited me with saving their lives sometimes i wouldn't even remember how but uh, they started calling me Angel, uh, Officer uh, Tight Shirt, which is a, a, a kind of a loving name they gave me <laughs> because I keep growing out of my shirts. And uh, then Angel just seemed to stick uh, with the community. And, I, and I, it's just an honor. The biggest honor is when they call me Dion because that's when it feels like they consider me family. And I love that because I'm not big on titles. I'm no better or different than them. I just have a huge responsibility. Yeah, and, and I know you take it seriously. You you, you had told me, you shared with me in a in a conversation not long ago that when you first started with the uh, with the law enforcement agency in Los Angeles and you were first assigned to Skid Row, you I may be overstating this, but it sounds to me like you didn't want any part of it initially. Is that correct? Yeah, it's going to be a big uh, hell no. I did not want anything to do with law enforcement. Even prior to law enforcement, I was like many young African American African American males. Uh, a couple of negative encounters with police kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And to make it worse, you know, there was this anti-police movement post-Rodney King era where I saw the Rodney King uh, uh, situation. I saw the riots, uh, you know, Dalton Street and other incidents and then getting racially profiled a couple of times. Uh, music influenced me, influenced me greatly. NWA uh, was playing in my tape deck. Yes, F the Police was playing constantly. Public Enemy, KRS-One. Everybody was kind of guiding me to a thought. It's almost like you're black. You're supposed to think this way. So I had no uh, intentions on being a police officer. But what happened was, you know, my family business completely shut down. And we were out of work for months. And uh, I met this beautiful, beautiful young lady who's my wife, uh, Tasha, I love you. 
Uh, and I want any real man wants to be able to provide to a woman. So I put my name in a whole bunch of hats. And then one of my friends says, hey, why don't you throw your name into to the police force, too? And I had an uncle who told me the same thing. And I said, the what? That department? Oh, heck no. I, come on now. You guys crazy. But I did anyway. And I prayed for any other job but that to call me. And the only job out of all of the jobs I applied for uh, was the police department uh, in L.A. County. And, and, and that's when I was like, either, you know, God doesn't love me anymore or he's pushing me somewhere. I don't know. But I went <laughs> and I ended up, you know, discovering uh, once I stopped listening to my friends and, and, and rumors and propaganda, I ended up discovering that 90% of things said about law enforcement officers weren't true. Of course, there's a negative exception in every profession. Look, uh, law enforcement officers, this is what I discovered, are nothing more than a microcosm of society. In America, I think we all can agree that the vast majority of Americans, whether they're white, black, gay, straight, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, atheist, devil worshiper, are decent human beings who are just trying to live their, live their life. I think we all can agree with that. And if you don't, please get off social media today. But we can also agree that there's a negative exception, a very, very small percentage of that population that causes all the havoc, causes all the fear, spreads all the rumors, and, uh, and creates a hot mess for the world. And where do law enforcement agencies recruit from? They recruit from that, from the American society. And most of the people they recruit are dedicated people who want to do a good job. But every now and then you get that negative exception. And when they rear their ugly head, it, it makes our job that much harder. And I always tell, especially the young African-American community is listening to me here, many of you who are looking for work, listen, you know, uh, it, 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 the job doesn't corrupt you, okay? It's what's in your heart. You know, if you become corrupt, it's because corruption was in your heart. Uh, it's a great job, and, and, and I understand. I was you. I was you. The only difference between me and you is I just saw the other side, and it's a noble profession. And, and your heart was open to it, obviously. So, so you end up, as a law enforcement officer, probably the last thing in the hat you wanted to do. And then on top of it, on top of that, you get thrown onto Skid Row. That must have sounded pretty attractive the first time you heard about that. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm being a little sarcastic, obviously. <laughs> when you first join a, a, a department, the department I'm on at least, uh, you, 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 your first year you do probation. And I did probation in a very wonderful area called Bennett's Beach. There was culture. There was diversity. There was, uh, you know, beautiful women on Sunday afternoon, if you're into that sort of thing, you know, and I was all right on my own. On, on rollerblades, no less. Yes, of <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great eating spots, norms, Versailles, all these great spots. And, you know, but you, you can only do a year. So when my uh, sergeant came, comes up to me and says, Joseph, your year's almost up. you got to put in a, a, a transfer. We'll give you three choices. Where do you want to go? So I picked, you know, three different places. And one of the places I picked was downtown. And uh, when I told my training officer on our last two weeks working together, I said, uh, yeah, I picked downtown is one of my choices. He says, what? And he pulled the car over. He says, do you know what's over there? I said, no, sir. He said, man, it, that, man you got to wear a body condom to work there, man. The people got HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis. They got scabies. They got they, people smoke crack and fight right on the steps of the station. And, and, oh, my God, Joseph, there's no place to eat. So two things you need to know. One, you already know. One, you know, I, I'm a man of faith. And the other is that I'm a germaphobe. So I, I went home and asked God. I said, God, you know, you've always answered my prayers. Don't wait, wait, wait. Did, did, you just say you're, did you just say you're a germaphobe? 
I was a drummer. I, oh, it was. Okay, I, that I did not know because I've been on Skid Row before, and I'm like, how how in God's name would you reconcile the two? Okay, go ahead, please. Yeah, Start it no, I, I'm serious. I wore five gloves to search people when, when I was at Venice Beach. And, wait, wait, uh, and uh, yeah, let me let me jump in for one second. I'm sorry, and you're on such a roll, and it's beautiful. And I, apologies for the interruption, but it just occurred to me. So as I mentioned, I, I've been on Skid Row before. For people who haven't. Is it possible to even verbally describe what that place is, what Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles is, so people out there can get a feel for it? There's two ways to describe it. Uh, there's what it's supposed to be and what it is. The Skid Row right. is called a re- it's called a recovery zone. It's called a recovery zone because there's uh, over 107, 108 programs designed to help people uh, who are poor on the poverty line or homeless struggling with a myriad of issues, whether it ranges from mental illness, uh, drug addiction, uh, domestic violence, uh, alcohol, pro, whatever it is, mental illness, it's there for them. Hope is a trip and fall away. But because it's centralized in the heart of Los Angeles and it's close proximity to adjoining cities like uh, Long Beach, Carson, Compton, Watts, South LA, Pasadena, uh, what ends up happening is the poor and disenfranchised from those areas, you know, who are kind of on the lower uh, lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, they end up coming to Skid Row because they don't have that buffer like their rich counterparts do. But also the criminal element from those areas follow them into Skid Row. Skid Row attracts two kinds of people. Uh, the first group are good people just trying to get their lives right. Some of them made mistakes. Some are trying to get better. Some of them are struggling with severe addiction and mental illness. And the second group are hundreds and hundreds of gang members, loan sharks, drug dealers who exploit them, prey upon them, and, and, and sell drugs inside tents, inside uh, carjacked, um, hijacked tents, sell drugs inside, out, outside of mission. And it can be extremely violent. Whenever somebody tells me, oh, oh you can separate uh, drug addiction and you can separate drug dealing from violence, that is a lie. You no, no, no. I, I know from yeah. personal experience that's not true, of course. <laughs> sure. So it just, it just, and you know, it's shocking that educated people with PhDs are, are, are repeating this nonsense that, oh, that there's, a, there's no difference between a drug addict. Look, there are drug addicts who stab people just for a quarter on Skid Row. That's how desperate people can be down there. And, 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 and drug dealers, how do they... Uh, run their business? How do they run their operations? Through fear and intimidation. So our aggravated assaults sometimes stem from drug debts, uh, you know, someone breaking someone's crack pipe. So you can't separate the two. And, and, and it makes it incredibly hard, incredibly hard for the real heroes, the service providers, to really have a stronger influence uh, on the, on the uh, people they're trying to help than the criminal element. That's Skidrow in a nutshell. Physically, uh, uh, you know, it's tents uh, lining every sidewalk. The gang members, as soon as you set up a tent on the sidewalk, they approach you. Hey, you're on my block. Guess what you have to do? You either pay me your entire Social Security check or you work for me. You let my women sleep. You use your tent to sell drugs. You hide my guns. You hide my drugs. And, and that's what the people living on the streets have to go through constantly, human trafficking, uh, it's really sad. It's a so there's always so the, so the threat of violence, the threat of rape, for instance, that's always pervasive. Then is that correct? It's always there. It, it's really sad. And it's like when you talk about rape, that's really something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, you know, women in Skid Row make up forty percent of the Skid Row population, and it's always been pers- pers- uh, consistently the same. But two thirds of them have been victims of sexual assault twice, 
And I always say to leaders and, and advocates who doubt this or pretend not to know this, I said, you can't be for, you know, the safety of women and homeless women in general, but be okay with an environment that leaves them in constant danger. I'm going to tell you a heartbreaking story if you don't mind. No, um, no, please, please, of course. I'll, ne I'll never forget. This is about two years ago. I usually do, I park my car and I do something called the sit down technique. I sit down on the block and I kind of take over the most dangerous corner and stay there until the criminal element leaves. So one day I parked my car uh, somewhere in the area of 5th and San Pedro and, and I'm running people off the block because a lot of people got stabbed, a lot of people got uh, uh, hurt over there. And I did for about three hours and I parked right next to this orange tent. Okay, after my shift's over, I did my good deed for the day. I go to the station and I leave. Uh, when I come back from two days off, I, I, I'm responsible for looking at every crime report. That's part of my job that happens in my area uh, to do follow-ups with victims, to try to solve crimes. And one report showed that there was a woman who was sexually assaulted in the most violent way by two men in an orange tent. And I looked at the date and the time, and more than likely, I was parked right next to the tent while a woman was drugged and horribly uh, uh, victimized. And I always oh. say, if we can't see them, we can't save them. And, and, and it's really, really sad. That's kind of a sh picture of what Skid Row is, is like now, right now. Wow. Uh, yeah, all right. We're, th this is pretty heavy. And I'm going to want to get into some more heavy stuff with you as, as we go. Uh, wow. Mm -hmm. that, that, yeah, that, that one hit me. That's visceral. Uh, let, let's back up for a moment. Toward the beginning of the interview, you described yourself a couple of times as a young black man. Um, you, I think you just did a great job of describing what um, what Skid Row looks like and feels like. Just to, to get some context to who and what Dion Joseph is, could you tell us a bit about you know what what you look like, your physical description? Well, I'm about close to six feet. Uh, I'm 200 and now 65 pounds of almost pure muscle. Uh, you know, my wife uh, loves me to death, so she cooks like I got a little bit of a gut right now, but I'm, I'm working on that. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I'm I'm a pretty muscular man. Uh, you know, very I'm very strong. I still got you know besides 20 arms, and I'm very. Uh, I still got the gift of brute strength. Uh, you know, my wife thought I was a football player when she met me. <laughs> so that's yeah, you know, it's funny, Dion. You, you, so, so even with all those, even with all those physical gifts, and I, and I, and I've seen you in person. So I, I, I just wanted the listeners to understand this. And, and, and you know, my listeners out there know that I come mainly from from the mixed martial arts and pro wrestling fields, and the the latter being populated by like the most physically impressive human beings on this earth. And, you know, a lot of it's cosmetic. Um, you know who's real, you know, you know who's not. And, you know, for the, for the listeners for Talking Tough, I can tell you that Dion is as real as they come. Um, so, so that said, Dion, even still, with the danger of Skid Row, um, I guess you must be, every time you venture out there, you must be going, what, with an armored vehicle with five or six other heavily armed guys. Is that right? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I, and I know that that question was a setup, of course. <laughs> I know it's usually it's just me and God. Uh, I've been working alone for uh, uh, 15 years now, and and I always tell people when people ask me what protects me out there. Of course, I always give all credit to God, uh, and you know I you know, I pray every day, you know. But I also feel 
as if the way I treat people, the way I love on people provides an extra buffer of protection for me. I've had people warn me about threats. I've had people warn me about advocates who were going to lie on me. I've heard everything. And because of people, they love me. And for the most part, I'm not saying I don't have my share of haters out there, <laughs> but, but, but for the most part, they look out for me and it feels really good. Yeah, I, I know that there's I know that there's women there, for instance, who kind of uh, and, and and obviously, you, you know, a lot better than either. There's, there's a large fair share of mental illness there and whatnot. But that said, and I don't mean the following is mentally ill. This could come out wrong. Um, I know there's a lot of women there like regard you as like their boyfriend and their fiance. Isn't that true? <laughs> you know, there's one funny story. There's a 70 year old uh, Hispanic woman who literally believes I'm her fiance. Uh, for years, she would approach me, kiss me on the cheek and give me a Mountain Dew and speak to me in Spanish. And you know, I don't habla. So I would just say see to everything she said. So one day I said, I'm curious as to what this lady is saying about me. So I got this app <laughs> so I could like press it and it, she would talk and it would translate. <laughs> and one day I'm walking with her, she gives me a Mountain Dew, and she says something so freaky to me. And I was like, oh, my God. She said something to the effect of, I want to drink you like this Mountain Dew. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so I discovered, you know, that this woman was in love with me. But if I told her otherwise, she would go crazy and assault people. So I oh, let this course. woman for years. I let her believe that uh, I'm her man. And I'll never forget. <laughs> She's walking uh, in front of my station and my uh, mm -hmm. wife. I dropped me off to work <laughs> and she sees me kiss my wife and she drops her cane and <laughs> opens her mouth and just runs away crying like a, like oh, a no. girl. And, oh, no. and I had, and I had, I had to beg her forgiveness all day long and she was crying. And I was like, that was just, it's just such a wonderful uh, uh, feeling to connect with people in that way. I fell in love, not just with her, but I fell in love with the people. There's just a, a beauty inside of them that, that, that I see, I appreciate. And, uh, and I always feel like I just want to show them love from a place that they've been indoctrinated not to expect it. And it's just a beautiful thing. No, of course, of course, they don't expect it. I mean, so so many of us and, and myself um, included at times guilty of of being so immediately judgmental toward other people and, and forget even getting down to the, the depths that the people in Skid Row fall into. You know, we see someone that we think maybe it's not presenting themselves in the proper manner or says the wrong word. So many of us can go immediately to judgment. How, how did you possibly get to a place where, where you have such love for, for these people? Was it always that way or was that a progression? No, it, it took a while. Like I said, when I first got to Skid Row, I wanted to get the hell out of there. You know, I, I imagine driving uh, northbound on the 110 freeway, seeing a picturesque LA skyline in uh, the, the, the picturesque West Coast symbol of America's economic might and power. And you're thinking, this can't be that bad. And then you get off the freeway and you're driving on 6th Street and you're seeing people in business suits with coffee in their hands, smoking cigarettes, getting ready for work. And you know how you get to some bad places. There's like always a mile and a half stretch of land that warns you first. There was no warning. When I uh, crossed Spring Street, it was like I tripped and fell into Dante's Inferno, Mad Max Thunder. Everything my training officer told me was 100% true. I saw people having sex on the sidewalk. The smell grabbed you by the nose hairs and shook you. People chasing each other down the street and people in hospital gowns. And I said, God, I know you didn't send me here. I, and I was going to put my transfer in. But after about three months of working in the streets of Skid Row, and people just kept coming up to me saying, I know it's something about you. You're going to help me. 
and, and I, I had to help them, even if it was going to make me late, even if it was going to make me late from getting home for dinner, you know, just something about uh, something about me that they, they just saw that they gravitated to and that they believed in. And, uh, and it was true. I loved them with all my heart and all my fears went away when I kept seeing injustice. You know, when I kept seeing homeless people get stabbed and their cases get rejected because they were, uh, you know, addicted or because they had criminal backgrounds. When I saw women getting violated and feeling like they had no place to turn because they were sex workers or they were on parole or probation, I kept seeing that over and over again. And something told me, Dion, these people need justice. They need somebody to care for them from a place they don't expect. And I yeah, stayed, that, that, and I that's I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I stayed and I fell in love with the people and I never left. That 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 is so. I can't even find the word. Amazing. You know, Dion. I, I, there's a little practice. I, I want to take a moment to to preach to our listeners, and I think uh, I I think and hope you'll back me up on this. Um, you know, up, up until a few years ago, you know, I I don't know what I told you and what I didn't tell you, but I've got a pretty heavy history of drug use myself and. A lot of it was narcotic painkillers, and I'm sure you you probably know the effects of every drug on the streets a lot better than I do. And you know, it, it can when you're on, it can make you you know the life of the party. And when you're on the way down, you're not the, you're not the nicest person in the world. And you know, I can say for many years that I was just part of my part of my French, but I was just kind of a dick to people. And right. I like to think these days that I'm a pretty nice guy. Of course, five years from now, I'll probably say five years ago I was a dick, but now I'm a nice guy. Who knows? But um, I'll, I'll tell you an exercise that, that I employed for quite a, quite a while when I felt like I was, quote, unquote, coming out of it. I told myself every time before I left the house that no matter who you encounter today, whether they're driving a Mercedes or, or they're begging on the streets, go out of your way just to be nice. And, and share a, share a positive word. And and I'll tell you what that did for me. It took me a long time, man. It's, you know, what I call you fake it to make it. We, we all know that term. And eventually it went from what my, what my ex-girlfriend used to call, went from my head to my heart. And I got to a point where I was just naturally nice to everybody. And, and for people out there, hopefully a lot of people do that. But I, I want to say this. If you haven't tried it, try it. Because in addition to making other people out there feel good about who they are and what they're doing, it's selfish also. Because you know what? You do that all day long. You feel pretty damn good about yourself, too. Would, oh, absolutely. You... As a matter of fact, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. As a matter of fact, when I first became a senior lead officer, uh, one of the things I did was I would write poems to the people of Skid Row. And uh, I had two uh, poems or odes or whatever you call them. One I called A Supernatural Life. And the other one I called You Are Not a Failure just letting them know that just because you failed doesn't mean you're a failure. You know, you know, no one's perfect. And just based on what you're describing, you, know, you, you fell into the category of four kinds of people in Skid Row, like anywhere else in the United States of America. And these four people are, 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 are goes as follows. You have one group, which are good people. These are good people minding their own business, just trying to survive, just trying to get better, trying to get on their feet. That's one group. And then you have the second group. You fell into the category of maybe a good person who does bad things. And the only reason why you did that was because of your state of addiction. Somewhere in there was the real Rick, you know, but most people don't have the patience to try to find him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I made it my business to try to find the real Jason or Daquan or Maria. I made it my business to try to find a real prayer. And then you have the third group, which are 
people who've made mistakes. They've, they've done things on purpose, but you know, in a proper environment, they can change their life around. I always feel like if you create an environment conducive to change, people have a better chance of changing, changing. And then the last group you do have, for lack of a better term, evil bastards who are just to the core of their heart. They're here to exploit. They're here to hurt people now. Uh, and this also describes Skid Row. Now, here's what's different about Skid Row juxtaposed to any other place in the United States of America. Because it's of its close proximity, it's 50 tight, super tight blocks with thousands of people, there tends to be this constant and frequent cross-contamination uh, of those groups. And here's what that looks like, okay? The good person always has to look the other way, even if they're a victim of crime themselves because it's so dangerous, okay? The good person who does bad things, you're a drug addict. You know, when they're binging, you know, you know, when they're, I'm sorry, when they're sober, you find out they have faith, they, 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 they have talent, they have degrees. But when they're binging, uh, the same person you may see me in a video shaking hands with will go around the corner as soon as they shake my hand and bust your head to the white meat to get what they need. It's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde effect. And then the, 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 the person who's made mistakes, right? But they, they, if they give an environment, if they just got out of prison, they're only getting $221 a month, they're not making enough money to survive. You know, they're going to put in work. Who's got the money? The drug dealers and the gang members. And then the last group kind of pulls all the strings and tries to make people like me look like the bad guy using racial arguments, using systemic racism and things of that nature and exploiting that to uh, continue to prey on people. And we have to recognize that. And if we don't separate and, and understand Skid Row is layered, we're losing the battle right there in saving people's lives. Hmm, wow. All right. Look, all right. So that you just you brought up a whole bunch of questions. Um, it's just a food for thought, I should say. So I, I've got that from you understand who these people are and the way you can break them down by category. If you are one of those people, you know, I, I, let me tell the listeners, I don't think you'll mind. A couple of weeks ago, I, I called Dion because a very good friend of mine in Los Angeles uh, comes from a very well-to-do uh, Las Vegas family, uh, very dynamic, smart people. She's a beautiful 39-year-old woman, and she has an equally beautiful, uh, very, very light-skinned Caucasian blonde twin sister who sounds like she is at the absolute depths of her rock bottom. Now, she's been to the fancy Malibu rehab. She recently called her family and demanded a hotel suite. And, you know, you know the drill. Um, her sister... It was like she needs, you know, she needs to go to the bottom. So I called Dion and I said, what do you do with someone like this? And, dude, you didn't hesitate because I think people I think people have an impression of the type of people that are on Skid Row, probably low, lower income, probably ethnic, uh, probably no resources. But you didn't hesitate. You said, send her to me and I'll get her placed. And, and if she's yep. if she's of the mind to be helped, she'll get the help she needs. So my, my question to you is, could, could anybody, no matter who they are and what background they come from, benefit by what's available in Skid Row? I, I would say ideally, yeah, the programs in Skid Row are good. The problem is not the programs, okay? The problem is the environment. So my feeling, and, 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 I, and I even told you, I said, I will help you if you want me to. You call me, you have her call me, I'll do whatever I can. But I also told you, I don't feel comfortable sending her to Skid Row because the temptation is too great to fail. How do you get clean? This is what many people in Skid Row struggle with. How do you get clean in Skid Row with all these rehabilitation programs, but the drug dealers not only stand outside your program, but many times slip in or get 
mandated in by the courts and and, and uh, under the guise of oh i need help i'm here for services but they're preying on the people so you know in the end it's not fair there's a uh, here's here's another form of injustice it's not fair that our favorite celebrities get to go to malibu passages you know they get to do yoga horses are running around incense burning all to get them away from the temptation to fail because one of the main tenements is environment is every, everything but our brothers and sisters in skid row are kind of forced to live in a, a, a mad max uh, thunderdome to try to and it's not fair so there is to me some social injustice there real social injustice that we can actually touch but many people will ignore and once again if we don't face that we won't fix it Hmm, hmm. You know, that's interesting. And I, and I, all, with all respect, I almost want to challenge you for a second on that, if, if you don't mind. And no, I don't and mind here, at all. And here's what I mean by that. So I, I've been to, I've been to two rehabs and, and I, you know, God, God willing, I'm as certain as you can be that the second and final one. But I can tell you that my experience of both is because they're expensive, the two I went to. They weren't passages, but they, they weren't far away from a passages type of place. That, that mm-hmm. Because of the money that's being spent there, uh, they're pretty darn permissive, actually. And the clients there, you know, if they're not of a mind to recover, will oftentimes look at the rehabs as a way just to become better criminals or better addicts. And, you know, and I've heard, I heard a story about passages once from a good friend of mine who, who was uh, in residence there for a while that 14 clients went out one night together, got hammered at a, at the Malibu Inn, which is a bar in Malibu and, and all, yeah, great. Right. And all staggered and stumbled back into the lobby to their private rooms. And that every staff member to the last one of them kind of twiddled their thumbs and and looked the other way when that was happening, because Mm. at 30 grand a month times 14, that's four hundred and twenty thousand dollars a month of business right there that Passages was looking at. You just brought up something that really, really hits home with me because I feel that in some cases, not in all, that uh, the homeless issue can be a, an industrial complex. You know, why, you know, clean it up when it's such a cash cow? And I'm not saying that's what every advocate group, but no, I don't disagree with you. I'm not saying that people who go to those high-end places don't relapse and don't, but what I'm saying is they have a better environment. Let me give you an example. From 2005 to 2010, uh, myself and a whole bunch of wonderful officers went out there and we cleaned that place up. You know, we had trees trimmed, we put uh, crosswalks in the south street lights up so uh, uh, women wouldn't get raped. We, uh, the homeless were allowed to sleep on the sidewalk from nine to six, which made the area generally clean up. And as a result, we, we did have more people benefiting from the programs. It's not to say that those, some of those people still didn't drop off. Let me give you an example. One shelter told me that before our efforts to make Skid Row safe and create a safe environment, uh, they only had a 40% participation rate in their drug and alcohol programs. They said when we ended up being allowed to do our jobs uh, for the sake of creating a safe environment, it jumped to 65%. And I was beginning to notice individuals who I thought were homeless, but discovered they weren't because in my stopping grounds, Inglewood, Carson, Compton, Long Beach, I would see these people looking healthy and strong. I said, Hey, aren't you supposed to be in the road? I said, no, I'm back home with my wife. I know I'm back home. You know, thanks for what you guys did. So I'd say an environment, I think ups the percentages or ups the chances for somebody 
to uh, get their lives straight. But no, I'm not saying every program is 100%. I would yeah, and, 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 and I'm just wondering like what the best environment is or, or what the best choice a, a, an individual can make. I, I can tell you this, when a couple weeks ago, you, you suggested a particular place for my friend and I looked the place up online and it was down and dirty for sure, but it looked like a very serious, very comprehensive program. And it, it got me to thinking these following thoughts. And this might be crazy. Um, and for most people that, for, for those who don't know me, you know, I'm a five foot, four inch, 135 pound white guy. Um, if I had decided to go there, would I be okay on Skid Row? Uh, you know what? If you decided to go to Skid Row, uh, you got to understand there's racial tensions there too. <laughs> you know, so you know I always tell people if you if you don't borrow money from anybody, okay, don't buy anything yeah. from anybody because once you once you do, you are now part of the life and you're open to being a punching bag. You're in debt. Uh, it's like you're it's like you're in prison basically. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So keep your head down, go straight into the program, and stay in there and do what you got to do. Uh, but once you get in there, I can tell you. I've met with the staff of every, just about every program in Skid Row. And these are people who, for the most part, do want to put themselves out of business. Uh, well, I'll never forget one of my closest friends is one of the presidents of one of the shelters. And we have these conversations where he says, Dion, we, this, this place should not be here. And uh, matter of fact, uh, he, he created a um, satellite site in Silmar. And boy, the, the people of uh, Silmar fought that tooth and nail. They brought their pitchforks and tiki torches it was crazy, <laughs> but he, he, he wanted to put women and children and families, homeless families in Silmar in a nice green area. And some of them were, did still struggle with addiction. You should have seen the people. They were like, oh, they're going to burn the city down. They're going to burn the hills down. It was crazy. Uh, so oh, I was going yeah. to speak on there. It's like the mess out in Costa Mesa and New, Newport Beach. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I had to go and, and in full uniform and speak up for this group and tell these groups these are women and children and their families. And let me tell you something. They haven't had one incident over there in the uh, seven or eight years they've been there. It's beautiful. And a lot of the people are getting help because the environment is better. Now, there are still uh, hundreds of families still in these shelters, you know. But once again, even the director, who's my best friend, one of my best friends, we both agree that uh, even though they're in good hands inside, Skid Row is no place for a family or a child uh, or anybody trying to re truly recover. It's not, it's, there's no place for it. Okay. Okay. No, that's good to know. Uh, but it's heartening to hear about the programs in Silmar and know those are working. I, I want to change directions for a moment here. This this is not, not that we couldn't talk about this all day because it's extremely informative and fascinating both. But I, I want to switch subjects for a second. So you've referenced a few times the, the predatory nature of Skid Row. Um, you've talked about, you know, w what it's like there if you're around those sorts of people, those sorts of people being largely gang members. I've heard you reference that a few times now. How do the gang members on Skid Row regard you and treat you? Well, when I first was, uh, when I first started as a senior lead officer there, uh, even before that, like I said, I developed the name Robocop because I was arresting them. I was just, that, that was my job. You, I'm a cop. You're a drug dealer hurt in the community, so I'm going to fill my, the backseat of my car with as many of you as I possibly can. And I did that, and I did that very well. But I wasn't working in a system that supported me in doing that, so they would get released over and over again. When I became a senior lead, I said I tried to do the same thing, and it failed. Once again, the courts weren't working with us. Parole wasn't the same. Nothing was the same. The laws were changing, and it was impossible. 
Uh, and once I developed a love for the people, I said, you know what, instead of just arresting everybody, let me stop for a second and get to know everybody. And uh, even the gang members in seeing the way I dealt with people in dealing with them, I'll never forget. Uh, there was a female gang member who uh, got pistol whipped and this girl hated me with a passion. She only went off what she heard. She only went off what she heard about me. And she talked bad about me. She went and made complaints against me. She did the whole nine yards and spread rumors about me. It was bad. Uh, and that I was the worst thing in the world. And I loved her with all my heart. And one day, a rival gang member shows up on the block and pistol whips her with a 45 uh, in broad daylight. Uh, people were just so scared. They were stunned. So they kept telling her, the only one that's going to help you is RoboCop. So she begrudgingly came to me. And when, she, when I saw her face and I saw the pain in her eyes, literally tears started welling up in my eyes. And when she saw that, you know, she knew I cared. And I went down, all the way down to South L.A. to get this guy. And I arrested him, and I let her know that I had him and that she was safe. And with the respect that some of the gang members even started, they said, hey, we know he's got a job to do, but he treats us like human beings while doing it. But I'm still going to do my job because, to me, drug dealers and gang members should not be in a recovery zone. And I will nope. fight that battle forever. But I, right, so I will always treat them with respect. You do. So you see this woman who has been beat up, and your heart's got to go out to her. I know about your lady, your ladies of the night program. I know that you feel very, very strongly about women being marginalized on, on the streets of Skid Row. I know you feel a sense of urgency to get them off the streets. That That's all got to tug at your heart. You see a woman like this who's been pistol whipped. You see this guy who's done it. You know he's done it. You you said you treat them with respect, and I, I, I absolutely take you at your word. But is there any part of you that ever wants to exact retribution? I'm a human being. And some of the things that I've seen out there, you know, you know, I always sometimes I like close my eyes and pray that we could stop time and I could just give to this guy what they gave to that girl. But the God in me, the professional in me, the, the, you know, I, my job is not to be judge, jury and executioner. My job is to bring them to justice and uh, me doing anything like that could hurt those chances and, uh, and and also make me no better than them. So, yeah, but I'm human there. I, I've seen criminals do things on this job that make me go home and say, my God, if I wasn't a cop, I'd be John Shaft on that. But, <laughs> you know, how, but how long, and I have to ask you this question, because at, at the top of this program, we talked about, you know, the, the guests on this show, you know, from, from, from the Ken Shamrocks to, to the Emmanuel Jaws to the Mia St. John's, they've all hit a very, very deep rock bottom. And what, when I've spoken with you, you, you told me that you haven't hit that. Thank God, and God willing, you never will. I mean, I, I, I know you're, you're a man of faith and a man of belief, and you're, you're, you're very clearly a strong person. So ho hopefully you will never hit anything like that. But, my, so, right. but, there, but, but you're not, but you're not St. Dion either, are you? I mean, do you, <laughs> uh, maybe you are, I don't know. But, uh, and, and I'm being no, a little, no, I, again. <laughs> so, so, so that no, being no, said, I, <laughs> you get these feelings about, you know, the, the people that have perpetrated these horrible things on women and others. And how long did those feelings stay with you? You're intellectualizing, and I get that, saying that, okay, it would make me no better than them if I were to do this. But how long do the feelings of like, of being tempted stay with you before it just sinks into your heart that everything is cool. I'll never forget when I was a young cop, another cop told me, Dion, you have to go numb to this. You have to go numb to this and just chase the radio, collect your paycheck and go home. That's career survival. One-on-one. 
And for some reason, I never allowed myself to do it. You know, when I see a victim get hurt, I eat the anger and I, and I do hold it in on purpose to motivate me to go get justice for them. I use it. I've learned to take it and use it as a motivator. I am not saying I walk on water. You know, I, I, I like to consider the way I live my life is, is playing chess instead of checkers. I think two steps ahead, ahead because, or four steps ahead because if I do something crazy or wrong out there and I allow myself to be human uh, instead of superhuman, I can not only mess it up for the safety of the people in Skid Row, but I also mess it up for my fellow officers. I mess it up for everybody, you know? So I'm not saying I don't have those, those thoughts of, you know, oh my God, this, this man who just beat up this guy to a bloody pulp because he's gay, you know, I, you know, and it, it makes my blood boil and it makes me think in a perfect world, if you just let me have one crack, you know, I'm not saying I don't have those thoughts, but what I'm saying is I, I stop, I internalize it and I say, look, let me try to get this guy justice the right way in a way that doesn't hurt everybody. I'm human. I'm no different than anybody else. Dion Joseph before uh, being a police officer was the type of guy, if you looked at me funny, I wasn't a bully. I was never a bully. But if you hurt somebody or if you picked on somebody or if you looked at me funny, I, I was coming for you. You know, I, I was coming for you. That's just a Joseph trait. We don't take crap from anybody and we don't put up with bullies. We don't do that. We never have. But but now Dion has a greater responsibility. And once again, I just take that pain and I, and I hold on to it and I use it to motivate myself to make change. Wow. Okay. So you, that's beautifully explained and, and, and I get it. So to summarize, and this, this is a really probably oversimplification, but you went from a guy who you weren't a bully, but you, you would act if you had to act or thought you should act to, to someone who intellectualizes when, when you shouldn't seek retribution, would you say that, the, the intellectualization of that has now gone from the head to your heart. That that's you know that's what I see when I when I see you, Dion. It's not like not like we're best buddies. I don't know you that well. Um, right. You you may not even remember when we first met. You you walked me around Skid Row. This was eight nine years ago now. When Roddy Piper, my my dearly departed friend Roddy Piper and I were working on a reality show called Rising Up that we wanted to film on Skid Row. And right. I remember my initial impression of you at that time. I mean, <laughs> when Roddy saw photos of you, by the way, he goes, why don't we get this guy in the business? I said, ah, Roddy, I think he's got a better gig. And he goes, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I'll never forget that. Um, but, um, you know, my, my immediate impression of you, because I saw your rapport with the people on the streets and I got a chance to talk with you. And it was this, this guy, this guy's for real. He's, he's not acting. And I, I didn't even know the, the, hypothesis and behind you know from the head to the heart but it, it feels like that this is all just how you live your life now and i, I want to point that out only because you know again better than i that so many people are struggling these days and there there's there's so much negativity there there's so much mental challenge mental illness and we can all myself included get get caught up in the most mundane things and you know make, make uh make molehills in the mountains, so to speak. How, how, how do you, seeing what you see every single day, the, the violence, the, the depression, the oppression, how, 
how do you stay in such a positive space? Uh, my faith in Christ. And, and I'm glad I'm in a space where I can say that. Uh, I, I know people like to see having, and I don't care what you believe, whether you believe in Allah, Buddha, I don't care. It doesn't matter. People see it as a crust. That's not true. Uh, you know, you know, everybody has their firstly higher power, uh, what they believe, or me in my case is what I know, you know? So I live by this standard. I, I live by this. I live, if God never gives up on people, then if we are supposed to be followers of God, then we should never give up. And I tell myself that every morning I pray. The first thing I say is, God, use me for your purpose. You know, just just allow me to 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 glorify you in how I love. I want to love like you. I want to be like you. Not preaching. I'm not preaching. I'm just, this is what I do every day. And if I don't do that first thing in the morning, I don't know how I would have survived out here for 23 years with all the heartbreak. And then on top of that, uh, just seeing my parents, how patient they were because they helped hundreds of people. Uh, and then the third thing is my wife. I am blessed to be married to a woman who, when I come home and I'm having that rough day, I can literally fall into her arms and she tries to make it all better for me. She listens. A lot of people in my profession don't have that. Some of their spouses don't want to hear it. Oh, I don't want to hear that. That's terrible. You know, Sure, my wife sure. is like my wife is like baby let me have it and 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 i and i do and it, for, for those three things to be in my life if it wasn't for those three things no i i probably would have went crazy a long time ago because like i said like that first training officer said don't let him in i let him in and i understood why he said that because letting people in can drive you crazy letting people in caused my parents to go broke three times yeah, four, uh, 41 foster, 40 my notes say 41 foster children your parents raised oh Oh, yes. My mother and father raised 41 foster children over their 47-year marriage. I was around for 17 of them on top of their four kids and three grandkids. And so you, you, were never, I, you were never jealous of the other 40, right? I, I, you know what? Anybody should have been. I mean, I literally had to share my love with dozens and dozens of kids. And it was, but for me, it was different. Watching my parents show love to those kids from a place these kids didn't expect it. And where should they have expected it from? Adults. Watching them turn these kids, whether they were with us from two weeks to two years, from scared, frightened souls to confident people kicking and screaming, not wanting to leave our home because they felt love for the first time, real love. And I loved how my parents didn't treat them any different than me <laughs> and my brothers. It, 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 if I got a hug, they got a hug. If I got in trouble, they got in trouble the same way. And, uh, to see that unpatronizing style of unconditional love, I watched that, and that uh, that became a part of me. And then to see my dad, you know, who came from the Jim Crow South as a violent uh, young man trying to survive and, and robbing people and stealing from people and, and changing his life and reaching back when he became successful and hiring individuals who were reminded of himself who were passed over because of racism or passed over because they had a criminal record and just watching him develop these men into better fathers. And then they went on to start their own businesses. And then lastly, both my parents served meals to the homeless for 10 years religiously up until my mom passed away uh, in 2006, uh, every Saturday without fail. These things were ingrained in me. I wanted to run away from that, you know, seeing how the toll it took on my family. But after, like I said, after about a few months being in Skid Row, I realized I was home. Healthy people was in my DNA, and it just I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Like, I'm so open to the people that right. people from Skid Row are. Wow. They're, they're Facebook friends of mine. <laughs> you know? The, the, I, you know and, the, 
this is an incredibly, God, I don't sound a little odd, weird, but this is an incredibly beautiful story. And, 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 and I feel all of it. And now, now I'm going to ask you to preach for a second, if that's all right. And sure. you, you may want to, you may want to, you know, consider this for a moment. So let's say uh, your background to me sounds absolutely amazing and, and almost enviable. I mean, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, white middle class, maybe arguably upper middle class in, in the San Fernando Valley when there were still orange groves and, you know, the, the threat of violence is you might get punched at a football game on a Friday night, but that was highly unlikely. Um, but, you know, my, you know my, my mom died suddenly when I was 13. My dad was gone. So he had to support the family. There was, there was one brother. He and I just connected pretty quickly. You know, I was largely left to my own devices, which turned into, uh, you know, a life of, of very, you know, petty crime and alcohol use and drug use and followed by cancer that I probably gave myself. And, and you know, it's funny. People would probably look at the background that I had. And this, you know, this, this interview is about you and not about me, but I just, I was going to come up with a, um, with an example that I was going to make up, but may as well use myself for this one. I, I hear about your upbringing and I'm like, to me, that sounds pretty awesome, pretty amazing. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that it was not challenged. I mean, God knows your father had his challenges. You've told me about it and we just heard about it. But wh right. what I want to ask you is this. Someone that grows up without what you had, even with, you know, without what I had, they're on their own. They're, they're drug addicted. Maybe they're, maybe they're ill. Maybe they don't have a support system around them. Right. Is life over for them? What can they do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So here's my preaching moment. <laughs> Please. There you have, you I, 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 I want to hear it, man. I could use it. <laughs> you, you, everybody out there listening under the sound of my voice. Look, you know, I don't care if you're a Christian or not. You have a father. You have a father who made you in his image and did not create you to fail. It doesn't matter how sexed out you are, how drugged out you are, how boozed out you are, how gambled out you are, how gangbanged out you are. There is a God that sees something special in you. And I live that. I believe in that. And because of that love of my father, I carry that into the streets and in a way become a father to the people of Skid Row. Do you know there are people who are 10 year, years older than me that call me godfather, that call me uncle? Oh, I don't some doubt them, it at all. Sure. sure. There are some that even call me dad. And it, it, <laughs> man, one of the saddest things, there was a severely mentally ill woman who came to Skid Row and she walks around the street naked all the time and I have to see her and I'm the only one who can get her to put her clothes on. I am the only one. And uh, one day I'm walking, passing out hygiene kits to the homeless and she gets up and she gives me this big old hug and she then puts her tongue in my ear, which was weird. Under <laughs> <And then laughs> the territory, I guess. Okay. <laughs> and, and, but I didn't get upset. I said, Hey, baby, don't do that. You know? And she says, I just want to tell you how much I love you. Dad, you're my dad. You know, you, you, you take care of me. You're the only man who comes out here and takes care of me. You don't ask for nothing. She had a sobering moment to stop and tell me that. And, and, you know, so when you represent the love of the father, of my father, you know, you know, people are going to have a father. They're going to have surrogate fathers. We're like little tentacles of our father, you know, showing that fatherly love. And, and, and 
we all have to put down this. We're in a very visceral age right now. We're in a very uh, uh, judgmental uh, age where people stop talking to each other over dang Facebook posts. You know, people are calling each other's eyes out over who's in the White House and who they want in the White House. And, you know, that's not... And, and, and measuring our self-worth on how many likes we get on a post, sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That you're looking for the wrong kind of love. You're trying to find love or superiority and tearing somebody down. You know, a father's love is unstoppable. I have three sons. I would die for my sons. If my sons ask me for something to eat, I would never tell them no, unless they're eating too much. <laughs> you know, if my sons say, Dad, someone's messing with me, I'm the father. I'm coming in, and I'm going to try to protect her. That's how I feel God sees us, and that's how I carry myself out there. If you mess with God's children, you know, I'm coming for you. I'm going to come, you know, and I'm going to protect them. I'm going to do all I can. That's the love of a father, you know. Now, I'm just a human being doing it. Am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. Do I make mistakes? Do I make misjudgments? Sometimes, yes. But my heart's in the right place, and the people see it. And, uh, yeah, I don't mind yes, no, I, 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 I hear that, and I feel that testimony both. For, for, for those of us who don't have a human or biological father, I, I – I'm getting that you were talking about the father above. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm talking about you know, the father. I want to, I want to jump in on that for a second. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a Jewish family. We weren't religious. Um, my mom, right before she died, enrolled me in a Catholic school of all things where I literally fought every single day for the first year. Cause I was the only Jewish kid and the shortest kid in the entire school. Um, oh, wow. after, after that, I, uh, you know, I thought I found Buddhism. So, you know, how, how, how messed am I, you know, Jewish, Catholic, Buddhist, I didn't, don't know which end is up. Um, but I, I, you know, a year and a half ago, I went into a program that opened my eyes to, to a higher power. And th this is, it's not that long ago. And I, I was absolutely spiritually bereft at that point. And right. just, just, uh, just 18 months later, 19, 20 months, whatever it is, my, my life internally without my circumstances changing much my outward circumstances is so much richer and so much more peaceful than, than it ever was before and I, I just basically that's my way of saying i agree with what you're saying and yeah once you I, yeah yeah what go ahead i'm sorry no yeah and yeah and, and once you find some relationship to a higher power you know wh whatever that higher power is it it could be jesus it could be of your own choosing uh to me it, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and I, I want to add this to it. If two years ago you told me I'd be on a podcast talking about a belief in a higher, a higher power, I would tell you that you're crazy. So for, for those of you who are out there, you know, with, with closed minds, I would just implore the following. Think about think about being open to it. You'll never know what you can discover that might just put your life in the direction you, you you'd like it to be in. Uh, it doesn't make that, you weak. It does, it does not make you weak. Oh, the opposite. You, the opposite. You realize that there are things that look, the good Lord created us to be able to do things on our own. He made us that way. That's why he said, I made you in my image. We can create, we can build, we can solve problems. He created us to do that. But we have to recognize that there are some things that are beyond our control. And there are things in my life, my personal life, where I've not professionally, I've had a really great career, but even personally where I've hit that really dark place. And he, and he was the only one I could rely on to get me there. If I didn't have him, yes, I would have thrown in the towel. 
you know. So and yeah. it's real. And it's real. It, hallelujah. It's it real. Jesus is real. Hey, Dude, who knew? Hey, who I knew? <laughs> you know, this, this, this is kind of fun. Not funny. It's not the right word, but I, you're a, you're a bit of a pro wrestling fan. Is that right? Oh, I grew up on WWE. I can't say the other one, but yeah, WWE since I was a kid. Hulk Hogan, Roddy Roddy Piper, Randy Savage, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, Rock, and Tony Atlas. That how, was about, my favorite area. how about WCW? Did you watch that at all? Oh, man, I love that. There was a time I kind of backed off of WWE and uh, went to uh, WCW, Ric Flair and, and uh, yeah, Lex Luthor and all. <laughs> okay, so I, I had a lengthy, I, I, right before you and I got on the phone, I was telling my producers, Ian and John, of the two-man power trip podcast empire, shameless plug for my world's most amazing producers, uh, and they, they know the pro wrestling world really well. I was telling them about a long phone conversation I had today with Sting. Do you remember Sting? Not not the musician, but Sting the pro wrestler. No, the wrestler. Yes. Yes. yes One of the top guys in the history of the business. And yes. Sting is working to bring Jesus Christ into my life. Now, I, I haven't accepted that yet, but I'm open to everything. But w right. what I want to say is this part of our conversation is almost identical to the one I had with him yesterday. So it just gave me this weird idea of trying to put you guys together on the phones. I think it'd be a really fascinating conversation. That's all. Oh, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, that well, he and I are due to talk tomorrow. So I, I am going to make that happen for sure. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, my Ian is signaling me that we're, we're close to our time here. Um, a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. So you, you've been on Skid Row now as the angel of Skid Row for 23 years. I know there's a lot of new things in your life. What what in your life is new that really excites you these days? Well, what's been in my life since uh, 2015 is I became a public speaker. And I love, one of the things I love doing, uh, well, prior to that, I gave Skid Row tours to thousands of people to educate them. I said, well, why don't I just go ahead and turn this into a real thing? So I've been on college campuses. I've spoken at convocations. I spoke to a crowd of 13,000 in uh, Virginia and just sharing uh, the realities of Skid Row while at the same time inspiring people, you know, to continue to be light in dark places. And that has been, I thought I, I never thought I'd have a greater joy than serving Skid Row. And I feel like the good Lord is pushing me into a whole nother direction to inspire people to stay in the fight, but do it with wisdom and discernment. See, a lot of times as people of faith, we, we only rely just on faith alone. And no, like I said, God created us. It's not just faith, it's wisdom and discernment. So I want to help people uh, discern how to help. And then another thing I did, uh, which was exciting, is I wrote uh, my first novel uh, about my 25-year career. Uh, it's called uh, Stepping Across the Line, a Skid Row Cop story, and now we're on volume one. And it's... Um, from what I'm hearing, for people who read it, it's a real page turner. Well, it, it, uh, it is. I was I was going to bring up stepping across the line because I read it and I loved it. So yeah, it's definitely a page turner. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's a good one. Man. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. Because all it is is a two volume book. The first book that you read is just chronicling, you know, my growth from a young African American male joining the police department and and falling in love with it, and then my entry into Skid Row and just kind of giving people the reality, not what the media is telling you. Because if you listen to the media, everybody's out in the street because of the rent. And they don't even want to mention addiction. They don't want to mention violence. They don't want to mention the crime. 
I have to paint this picture for people because I always believe in my heart that if you want to help anybody, truly, if you want to help somebody, you have to do it from a truth-based foundation. Any other foundation, all efforts will, will, will fail, and we're already seeing that, okay? And uh, on top of that, I wanted to humanize police officers because, as you know, we're in this age of just extreme hatred for the police, you know, and it's dangerous not only for cops, but it's also dangerous for the people we serve because our hands are being tied, you know, as people spread a really, really dangerous narrative, a broad breast narrative, and it's even hurting the safety of communities. So I wanted to show the people that, no, I was not some robot let out of a box uh, to go out and engage in systematic oppression. That's false. I'm a man. Here's my story before I became a cop. And guess what? I never changed. I never stopped loving being black. I never stopped loving God. I never stopped loving people. I'm still that guy. I just have a tough job to humanize the homeless because I get tired of people disrespecting homeless people, uh, demonizing them. And most of them do it to push a narrative or an agenda. And I wanted to, I had to discover, I want to show my journey of not judging them and discovering how to not judge them and seeing who they were instead of what they were and falling in love with them. And also humanize people with faith because now, you know, even Christians are getting a bad rap. You even say you're a Christian, get ready to answer for the Spanish Inquisition, you know. <laughs> it's just that bad right now. And, and, but I'm all three, and, and, and I operate in love, not in hate, for everybody. I don't care if you're gay, straight, bisexual, Dude, you're, you're, bisexual. You're obviously as real as they come. I know that. I'm not just saying that because you're my special guest of the day. I've always known that. And <laughs> after talking to you for the past hour, it's just, it's just reinforced. Uh so if people do want to hear more about you, you're, and, and, and I know you you do not ask me to plug this, but I want to because I read the book and I loved it. Stepping Across the Line, how would they get that? You can get it on Amazon Kindle. Uh, you can also order it. and I will, If you order it, I'll autograph it at dionjoseph.org. Just go to the store and I'll autograph it myself and I'll send it to you. And uh, here's the funny thing. People look at it and go, oh, my God, this book is intimidating. Let me shelf it. And they'll read it four months later and go through it in one day. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it, it, it's as you said, it's definitely a page turner. I, I, I'd be the first to say that. And, and I want to ask you this, too. Yes, go ahead. Go on, please. Oh, also, they can reach me on my website at www.deonjoseph. If you want to book me to come speak at your college campus. I was just going to uh, ask you that. That was my next question. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Because I really feel like the, uh, the future great minds of America, and they're great, they're great, they're impressionable, but I feel like they're getting a one-sided view of crime control, uh, community policing, and policing. Sure. If you sure. ever want me to come, I always tell people, you give me two hours of your time, I'll change your life. If you want me to come to your convocation, uh, if you're a Christian university or school, I will share a story that will blow your mind and inspire you like no, nobody's business. And also, if you're a law enforcement agency, just looking to understand the complex issues of homelessness, uh, uh, the how I mastered uh, uh, community policing, I always say I've mastered uh, policing in a complex adaptive system. I mastered that. And I want to show officers how to figuratively, not literally, uh, kind of put down your uniform and be human to get the same results you want. I did that through a technique I call grassroots community policing. And if you just want me to come to your Sunday service and give your pastor a break, hey, let me have the mic. I promise you, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's amazing and, uh, and, and laudatory that you've made yourself so accessible. I, I'm sure people out there must appreciate that. So they can, they can get your book, they, and you're available to speak through your website at, at dionjoseph.org. 
And look, I know you're probably embarrassed by this because now I'm pushing you hard, but I, I felt like I wanted to do that because I, I get why your message is so valuable. Man, I, I really appreciate your time today, Dion. It was so great to speak with you. And if it's okay with you, I'm gonna call you um I'm gonna call you tomorrow to put together that call with you and staying if that's cool. That's fine with me. All right. And any uh man, usually I'll try to come in strong with uh with a wrap up, but I have a feeling like you're probably better positioned to do that than myself today. And anything uh, any 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 parting words, my friend? Parting words are this. Everyone out there has the ability to provide a window of grace to somebody. You don't have to be the president. You don't have to be a senator. You don't have to be a congresswoman. You don't have to be an advocate. Every human being out there is is, is capable of pre- creating a window of grace uh, to somebody through a kind word, just like you said, through giving in a responsible way, mind you, through uh, you know volunteering at a shelter or service Instead of reading about the issue from a 30,000 foot view, coming and learning and, and, and collectively bringing our best and brightest minds uh, together and saying, based on what I see, this is how we can solve this and cre- create a window of grace to help somebody struggling with homelessness, with addiction, with mental illness, or even worse, all three. I believe this is something that's fixable if we operate in faith and with common sense, with common sense, you know, not. Uh, political rhetoric. We can't politicize the issue, not idealism, and not looking at it from a 50,000 foot view from some, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ivy League tower. You have to come down and touch the issue if you want to change it. No, that, provide that window of grace. That, that, is, that is so true. And it, if you don't mind, I'd like to piggyback on that for a moment. And I'll never say it nearly as articulately as you did. But who, uh, to the listeners out there, I want, I want to give you a challenge. And, and, and I'm hoping this will I'm hope I know you'll back me on this, Dion. So here's your challenge. The next five people you come across in public, be nice. Go up, say hello. And guys, I'm not talking about, you know, searching out the hot chicks and being nice to them or vice versa. Um, maybe the people look like they could use someone to be nice to them. No matter what the situation and or who it is, be really nice to the next five people you meet and see what that brings you. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. Can I can I send one message to my fellow brothers and sisters in blue out there? Of course. This is my message to you all. You know, and just listen to me closely because this is how I've been successful in policing and and building bridges. And this is it. My badge and my gun will never ever be the tools I utilize to invoke positive change in the lives of the people I serve. They're already used to that. Uh, but my heart, my faith, and my undying love for humankind will always be my unyielding dogs of war. If you can add that into your tool belt, into your Sam Brown, my brothers and sisters, we're going to make a difference. We're going to change things. And you guys be careful out there. Watch your sixes. Amen. Well, everybody, it's uh, Rick Bassman for Talking Tough with uh, with Dion Joseph, who is absolutely the most amazing person I've talked to in God knows how long. Dion, thank you so much. Uh, uh-huh. This Rick Bassman. Thank you, thank you for having me. My, my pleasure. Signing off with Dion Joseph on Talking Tough. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dion. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. 
But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.